WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining us today is John Cox, faculty member over in the art department who's also a UD grad. Um, I know we sometimes run that parody of the most interesting man in the world. I think John's one of the most interesting people I know on campus. He's one of the few I know who's been to all seven continents. John's a UD grad with a degree in entomology, and he now teaches photography in the art department. So how did you go from being bug boy to photo man? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) So my junior year of college, I was able to take a close-up nature photography course. It was a macro photography course, and um, I I did it because I wanted to photograph insects. I wanted to get up close and personal with insects. And then I realized I fell in love with photography, and it's all I wanted to do from there on. So after... After I graduated, I stuck with my degree. After I graduated, I worked for Bartlett Tree Experts as an arborist. And then I kept photographing along the way, and I started writing for a magazine. And then I finally went back to school and got an MFA, so um, concentration in photography. Cool. That's pretty interesting. We've got a UD alum who's now come back to teach. And your teaching incorporates design, photography, and using what you see or helping students learn that they can use what they see to help make a difference in the world. And as I said, I, you're one of those guys that gives distance education a new meaning, having led study abroad programs on six to seven continents, every continent except Europe. That's the only continent I have not taken students to. So uh, I, I figure I'll do Europe when I'm a little bit older. <laughs> and what other kinds of places have you led trips? I've led trips to Tanzania, I think seven times, Antarctica, uh, three times, twice with Ralph Beglider. That's where I shared a bunk bed. I had the top bunk. Um, you know, Ralph is just one of those amazing guys. He's been all over the world. So I feel really lucky that I had the chance to uh, share a program with Ralph. Um, the second time or the third time I led the trip to Antarctica was with uh, Jake Bowman. I've also led trips to Vietnam. Jake Bowman and I in the Wildlife Conservation Department, we did trips to uh, Tasmania, Australia, and we're leading our first trip to Cambodia together in uh, 2013, this coming January. Coming up January. What was the first trip you took? First trip I took was to Tanzania in 1996 as a student. So uh, chance came up for me to go to Africa and my great aunt Slim, she uh, she just passed away. She was 96 when she passed away. But she filled my head with these just grand visions of Africa. She used to go hot air ballooning through Africa. And she would tell me about the, the wildebeest on the Serengeti and the prides of lions. So I did not go to Africa because of the Disney Channel. I went because of my my great aunt, and uh, I was so fortunate to be able to go. And she, she said once that when you get to Africa and you pick up the soil and you smell it, you'll feel like you've come home. And I really did, and that's why I've been back uh, 13 times since then. To Tanzania. <laughs> to Tanzania. That first trip, I think you went with Dr. Estes? Yes. Yeah, so the first trip I led as a faculty director was in 2001 with Dr. Uh, Richard Estes, and he's one of the world-renowned wildlife biologists, wildlife behavior biologists in um, Africa. 
So he was getting the students to observe the behavior of the animals in the wild, and you're trying to get them to see it through the camera. Through the lens, exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, what are some of the experiences that you you had as a student on the study abroad program to Tanzania that you want to bring forward to your your students today or mm-hmm. now what golly 16 years later <laughs> that's that's a great question one um one of the best experiences i had was actually spending time with the maasai so our truck broke down um as i was a student and we were just camping in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden these maasai warriors came up to us and they said they had a camp you know just about a mile away so after dinner, uh, all the students gathered up, and we hiked to their camp, and Maasai warriors started dancing. The women chimed in, and it was just one of the most amazing experiences you've ever had. And having that cultural exchange is what I really wanted uh, to bring back to my students, realizing that, yes, they live in a house that's made of cow dung, but look at the good time they have, and look at the <laughs> the family bond that they have. So... Um, Kind of, kind of giving students the idea that wealth doesn't necessarily be have to be measured in dollars and cents. But it's also, I think, important that all the trips you've gone on usually collaborating with somebody from another discipline. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so that's a really important aspect for me because you can love photography, but I think you need to also be interested in something else in the world because that can focus your attention, your photography attention, onto a, a social cause, which often is what I do. So, like you said, I like to team up, collaborate with people. And it's not just abroad, it's in other elements of my teaching, too, that I like to collaborate. I think your first trip um, that you led was out west. Um, the first one was Tanzania, and then I... Well, second, first one was Tanzania. Tanzania. And then the second one was with an adjunct uh, professor in health and exercise science, and we started leading back uh, packing trips across the U.S. So we would start uh, in Newark. Everyone would pile into a 15-person uh, passenger van, and we would head to the Adirondacks. And then from there, we would just head west until eventually we would hit Seattle, Washington. I would uh, put all of those students on a plane. We were stopping off at national parks along the way. So we would do three nights in uh, the Badlands, three nights in Yellowstone, three nights in the Tetons, um, eating powdered food mixed with water the whole time. So students would lose a lot of weight <laughs> on these trips. And then, you know, we would hit the the first diner and we'd load up on calories and move on. But then I would bring another group back. So that group would fly out, another group would fly in, and I would bring a completely different group back doing a different route. So hitting basically, um, you know, waiting for the snowmelt up north. So usually we would move north on the second trip. Were these students studying any anything in the ecology, or was it was it um, to experience the the stuff out in the wild, or what? What was the story on these? A trips? little bit, a little bit of both. So one, they were learning um, survival skills, backpack backpacking. So that was through the health and exercise science, and then mine was um, wildlife photography. This is when we used slide film, so students would not see their images until they got back. So they were shooting film. Uh, they would shoot about twenty to thirty rolls. And then a week later, after they got home, they would get all their images back. So completely different from what it is today, where you're seeing your images immediately. So I I think the learning curve has gone, um, you know, much, much faster now for students using digital. Well, I hadn't planned to ask you about that until much later in our interview. But as long as you've raised the, the topic, I mean, talk about some of the differences you're seeing. I mean, teaching using digital media versus um, film. I think what I what used to take me about a month 
with film I can do about in a week with digital. I think it's actually crunched the learning curve that much because students are able to make adjustments and see them immediately. Um, it doesn't mean that they can get sloppy with their technique. You still have to have good technique. And just because you take a thousand images in a day doesn't mean you're going to have any good ones. So you, you really still have to pay attention to technique and all the different settings. And I still have students shoot all manually um, and really learn the camera settings and, and use it as a creative tool to get their vision across. Has it created new barriers for students or has it opened up floodgates for creativity or somewhere in between? I think it's opened up floodgates, honestly. Um, today we're in such an exciting part of photography because every process is still being used today. So I've done daguerreotypes, which is the first process. I've done tintypes. Um, you can combine digital with tintypes, digital with daguerreotypes. There's just so many different elements that you can do now that you have access to that you weren't able to do in the past. Um, and as far as you know, creating barriers, definitely not. I once thought early on, how cool would it be to be in the middle of the Serengeti and being able to upload images to the web. Well, the last trip we did it, the trip before that we did it. So we brought a portable satellite device that was solar powered. We hooked up to the web and we kept a blog while we were in the middle of the Serengeti Plains, which is for me amazing. And, uh, and the people back home loved it. <laughs> and by the way, if you go to the show's website, www.udell.edu slash campus voices, and you select the page about John's episode and scroll down a little bit, you'll see we put a link up to that blog that the students kept while they were in Tanzania with you in January. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with John Cox from the art department here at the University of Delaware, and he's been talking to us about digital media and his trips abroad. And I think you can tell that a study abroad program with John Cox at the helm has got a different vibe than, say, a trip to UD's London campus or, or a trip to Geneva, Switzerland. I mean, they're all valuable learning experiences, exposing students to different perspectives on the world. But I've heard from some of your former students that a John Cox-led trip is often a unique experience. Um, I think so. I mean, I haven't been on anyone else's program, so it's a little hard for me to say. Um, Typically, we're camping, so students are sleeping in tents. I'm also sleeping in a tent. Uh, Dr. Jake Bowman is also sleeping in a tent. So it's not like we have a class Monday through Friday. We're with the students 24-7 when we're there. Um, and we deal with a lot of other issues. You know, if, if someone has a tummy ache, <laughs> middle of the night, you get a, a knock on your tent. Someone hears a lion, you might get a knock on your tent. So it's definitely a different um, experience. And it's really full immersion. So a lot of times, too, we're spending a lot of time with the indigenous people in the area. So we'll go and we'll spend three or four days with them. Sometimes we're even working in the field with them. If it's an agriculturalist, if it's the hunter-gatherers, we're actually hunting and gathering. And students have brought back uh, dictic, which is a small antelope. We've bought, brought back uh, bush babies, and they get to try this bush meat. So it's a pretty rare experience. With the Maasai, oftentimes um, the Maasai will sacrifice one of the large male goats, and students can partake in that whole ceremony. So it's... It's definitely different, I think, than, than your normal study abroad program. So you all eat, sleep, load, unload the <laughs> trucks, push trucks out of the mud with each other, mm-hmm. the whole, whole nine yards. Yeah, if we don't get stuck in the mud, something's going wrong. So uh, we've had trips where we're stuck in the mud every day, sometimes five hours. We've had trips where 
We've had seven flat tires in a day, but it's really a team effort to get these. They call them a Unimog. Um, one of the trucks is actually an old German troop carrier, um, and it takes 20 people to pull these trucks out of the mud. So that, you know, a lot of times that trouble brings a group together and really bonds them in ways that um, you don't necessarily have. I've had plenty of students that have gotten married after these trips, so I'm I'm not saying <laughs> we're matchmakers, but I am saying that uh, students really form tight bonds with each other on these programs. So they really do feel like they've the trips changed their life, and I bet you still hear from some of them. Oh, absolutely. I hear from students all the time. Um, like I said, I've been to several weddings, and you know, I, it's, pretty, it's pretty great to, to see what they're up to. You know, I've had students that are uh, now lawyers, um, students that are involved in politics. I've had students that... Um, one of my students is now working at Rolling Stone as the photo editor. So they've gone in all different areas. So that one is very photo-oriented. Even students that have gone on to work for National Geographic, um, students that have led nature camps, things like that. So Again, out at our website, www.udell.edu slash campusvoices, we've put a link up to some of the student galleries. Um, are there any particular pictures that you would advise our listeners to cruise and try to find that you really, really have enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. One of the ones, uh, I think it's in the uh, Color Photography Gallery, was by Alyssa Crawford. She uh, took a photograph of one of the icebergs in Antarctica. And people always say, well, what's there to do? Why would you go to Antarctica three times? Uh, Well, the ice, of course. (laughs) You know, the ice is amazing. So the wind blows it, the water forms it. Each iceberg is its own sculpture. The light hits it in different angles. So it's just, it's unbelievable to see these, especially when the light's hitting it right. She captured this one iceberg with the light hitting it right. And I think she won an award for a design competition for that one. Another one that stands out for me is a shot by Dustin Briggs. It's a shot of two Vietnamese children, um, and they're inside of their house, and their window's broken, and they're kind of peering behind this dusty, broken glass. And he won an award for a Nikon uh, competition that Nikon was holding for that image. So those are two that really stand out for me. Cool. Now, the one that I picked out to decorate the page about this particular interview, it's got a picture of you sitting look like you're bush-tired, holding a camera in one hand. And there's this little kid peeking out at you from behind a rock. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. That was uh, for a cultural mapping project that I did with a group of hunter-gatherers called the Hadza in Tanzania. And we were out for three weeks straight and... I don't grow a beard very fast, but you can see I have a little scruff. So it must have been at least two weeks into the into the trip. Uh, we were in a, a rock painting cave. It was called Puku Puku. And the rock paintings are thought to be about a thousand years old. So they're actually not that old. But um, this one young boy, his name was Thomas. So the, a lot of the Hadza have multiple names. So Thomas was his uh, missionary given name. So missionaries come in. But um, I think Sequazi was his, his real Hadza given name. Um, but he could read and write. So he was there on the trip helping to document the stories of the elders as they were telling it to us. So, and uh, he was my buddy. He could speak English too. So uh, he had been to um, primary school, and he was also part partway through secondary school. That brings up something I think is pretty important for people to know about, that as you've been back to Tanzania now 13 times, I think you've said, you've really become very close to the country and really have gotten involved in some of the indigenous people and, and some of the things that it's important to try and maintain their lifestyle, yet still integrate them into being accepted by the modern world. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. So there's an organization I, I work with. Um, I'm on the board, and it's called the Dorobo Fund. And basically what we do is we help indigenous uh, peoples of Tanzania with things like land rights. Um, we've set up businesses for Maasai women where they charge people's cell phones with a solar panels, and then all that money gets funneled back into the community where children can go to school. Wait a minute. You got the Maasai with solar panels and cell phones. Did you really just say all that in one sentence? I did. I said that. (laughs) Uh, Technology has changed unbelievably since uh, my first time as a student in 1996. So, you know, Maasai warriors now carry cell phones. Everyone has a cell phone over there in Tanzania. And the cell service is, no lie, I get better cell service in Tanzania than I do at my house. I have to walk outside of my house and stand on one leg to get cell coverage. But uh, I can text my wife from my tent (laughs) without a problem in Tanzania. So there are cell towers uh, throughout. It's become very inexpensive for them. And they use, you know, very old cell phones. So any th- any cell phones that we would probably throw away after two years, they're still using years from now. Well, actually, I think that's a, a good point. I mean, by that telling us that story, you've explained to us, I mean, these people are in touch with modern culture, but it's still important to them to maintain their traditions and their way of life. How, how, how do they manage to do that? Yeah. I think the key issue there is you said um, maintain their way of life. In a lot of the regions where we are, there is no other viable way of life for them. So if you're out on the grasslands, um, agriculture isn't really possible because the water source isn't constant where, you know, we have the capability in the Midwest that we can tap into these aquifers. They don't have that capability. So really the only sustainable livelihood in some of these areas is pastoralism or it's hunting, hunting and gathering. So what we do in the Dorobo Fund is try and allow these people to have access to their land without the government partitioning it off um, for hunting rights or selling it off to um, a large farming corporation that's going to fail anyway because the land isn't proper for that um, type of agriculture. It's, it's only good for basically um, pastoralism or hunting and gathering. So we're basically trying to empower the local people and give them the ability to speak up for themselves and have rights to their own land that's been their land for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Is there any problem that they have, like integrating themselves into a multicultural country like Tanzania must be with some cities and all this, mm-hmm. if you will, bushland? Right, absolutely. The, um, the hunter-gatherers especially, because they're not used to that form of um, community. They're used to a very egalitarian society, which means there are no given leaders. So there was never a chief of the hunter-gatherer tribe. You know, if a woman wants to leave her husband, she just gets up and walks away. So it's that equality that makes them so special, but it also means they don't have a leader. So what the Daroba Fund helps to do is kind of pick out some of the, the born leaders, if you will, that can then speak up for the rights of that particular tribe. Um, but it's a very difficult situation. We made huge progress in the last few years where the government actually has given the Hadza, the hunter-gatherer tribe there, um, land rights, not to the land that they used to have, but the land they're currently living on. So they've lost about 90% of their land in the last 50 years. So our goal in the Daroba Fund is that they are able to at least maintain the land that they still have. And um, 
we're not there to, to preserve the culture. We're there to have them, if they want to change, change with dignity. And that's really the key for me is that if they want to change, you know, cultures change. It's just, we can't avoid that. But we want them to change because they want to change, not because someone's forcing them to change. There is then some stigma still attached to being a hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. or someone herding goats. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. So what we're doing with the Drobo Fund, I'm doing this um, documentary book that we've been working on since 2006. And this book is, what we did is we took elders, we formed a committee. So there's 12 elders that they told us what they wanted in the book. We didn't tell them what we thought should be in the book. So it's a way for them to communicate not only to the other young people in the um, Hadza hunter-gatherer tribe, but also to the neighboring people. So we're going to print this not only in English, but we're also printing this in Swahili. Uh, We have a lot of donors that have donated money that we're going to give away Swahili copies to the local people surrounding the hunter-gatherers so they have a little more idea of why it is that the hunter-gatherers are hunter-gatherers. Interestingly enough, during real times of famine and drought, the local people surrounding the Hadza, maybe the pastoralists or even the agriculturalists, come to the Hadza because the Hadza know where to find food when everything's dying. (laughs) Oh, wow. So it's pretty amazing that that's what happens. There is no record of famine in the oral history of the Hadza. They've had times that are lean, but they can always find food. Even finding things like seeds out of elephant dung. It's enough to survive. That sounds like a real delicacy, John. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> I think, though, one of the things that was, we talked about this uh, about 10 days ago or so, that you were also talking about the relationship between the Hadza and a, a, tro- a tribe like the Datoba. Yes, the Datoga. Um, so the Datoga are another group of pastoralists, and their land borders directly next to the Hadza hunter-gatherers. Um, the Datoga's land also borders right next to the Serengeti Plains. So we're also, the Daraba Fund's also working with Datoga to secure land rights there so that during the great migration of the wildebeest, the, the wildebeest can come in and they can use the Datoga land, but they can also filter into the hunter-gatherer Hadza land too. So that way there's a, a cross of animals going from one location to the next. That's what makes Tanzania so unique compared to a country like South Africa, where South Africa has fences and they tranquilize um, large animals and they move them from one game park to the next to exchange this genetic diversity where in Tanzania, these animals migrate all the way up into Kenya, and then they come all the way back, back down. So it's this movement and this ability for the animals to move that makes Tanzania so unique. What kind of animals do the Datoga you herd? Um, goats and cows. Mm-hmm. Goats and cows. Goats and cows. So, so you've got the hunter-gatherers, you've got the pastoral tribesmen, you've got the wildebeest, and then you've mm-hmm. got the goats and the cows. That right. sounds like quite something to manage. <laughs> it is, but one thing, the wildebeest carry a certain disease that when they're calving, um, this disease can be spread to goats and cows. So when the wildebeest are moving through, the pastoralists know that they have to get their goats and cows out of the way. So it's really a sustainable way for people to live with the wildlife in that region. We're talking with John Cox from UD's art department, and he's been talking about a lot of the study abroad trips he's been on and some of the things about digital media. Let's move a little closer to home, if you don't mind. Um, you've been involved with a, in a project with the Philadelphia Flower Show, haven't you? I think you're going to tie your next involvement in with the city of Wilmington. Yes, correct. So in 2011, um, Dr. Jules Brooke and myself 
And a, a whole bunch of students <laughs> created this display at the Philadelphia Flower Show. Uh, we bit off way more than we could chew on this, and we had no idea what we were getting into. But it becomes pretty addicting once you see the um, 250,000 people seeing your exhibit and seeing how excited the students get. So we took last year off, and then the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society graciously gave us a grant to come back. So we're going to do it again in 2013, and that's going to be in March And basically what we're trying to do is teach the public about sustainable practices like composting, rain harvesting, and doing it in a very aesthetically pleasing way. So this particular show coming up, the title is going to be You Are Brilliant. And we're going to teach the the attendees at this how they can design their own space because they're brilliant. We're all brilliant. We just need to be taught sometimes. So this is... is a UD exhibit, or is this a um, some kind of special environmental exhibit? What, what happens mm-hmm. up at the Philadelphia Philly Flower Show? So you've got me all tongue-tied now. <laughs> me too. Uh, yes, this is uh, through the University of Delaware, so we're in the educational category. We have about seven different classes that are involved in this, plus we have uh, a handful of independent study students that are working on this project. So we have students from leadership that uh, Tony Middlebrooks is incorporating into some of his class assignments. Jules Brooke in the plant science department is having a lot of her students design and also help build. We have six, no, we have three sections of FYE that are helping to build this. And um, so we have a lot of students involved. I have a, a few independent study art students that are helping with the communications aspect. We're helping with the blogs that we're doing, the website and designing promotional materials and also giveaways that people at the show can take away as far as design goes. So they'll be able to take something away that helps them follow steps that they can design their own space. And sort of design their own space that matches their own style or personality. Correct. So we're highlighting three very different people with the um, actual exhibit that we're creating. So we have a 23-year-old artist that just graduated. She's a painter I'm kind of a hipster, so that garden is going to be completely different than Josh Taylor, who has grandchildren, and he uses the space more during the day. He's a photographer. He likes to be able to photograph things. And then we have a a 38-year-old banker who doesn't want to do much maintenance, but he loves entertaining outside. So I think we have a pretty good cross-section of what a different space could look like. So the idea is at the Philly Flower Show, you mock up, if you will, spaces like this and explain the parameters and people look at them. But all through these different styles, you've got the composting, the water conservation. Mm -hmm. We might even incorporate some green roofs. So we're still in the design phase, but we're definitely into sustainability. And that's one, one of the major elements that we want people to walk away with, not just that they can design their own space, but also how to incorporate sustainable elements into that design. That's all great for Philly, but how's that going to impact Wilmington? (laughs) That's a good question. So all the materials that we're using at the Philadelphia Flower Show, we're going to redesign based on the materials and put it into a a deserving park in Wilmington. So one of the parks we have kind of slated for that is, um, I can't remember the address. I think it's West West Park, something like that. Um, But what we're going to do there is take an abandoned lot 
and then create this space for the community that's then very usable. So right now they're using the abandoned lot for things like a chili cook-off. And it's always, they're raising money for the community or they're raising money for a cause. So this is going to be a place that the community can gather, feel proud of, and just use more and basically beautify the space and also incorporate sustainable um, elements into that landscape. We've been talking with John Cox here on Campus Voices on WVUD, and I think you can hear that he... Yes, he's using photography as a starting point to document the world, but then he gets involved, don't you? I mean, I think you really model for your students, um, bringing social change about the local and the global level mm-hmm. and using photography as the starting place. I think it's also pretty cool you hear that this UD alum with a Bachelor of Science, and he's out there now doing all this stuff with design and photography. I think I'm very fortunate that I was able to figure out a way to follow my passion. And and I continue to learn all the time. I think that's what makes life for me so excited. I'm learning all the time. I take classes even during the semester, which is, I love, you know, so right now I'm taking a class on multimedia literacy uh, with Dr. Fred Hofstetter, who's he's an amazing professor. Um, so learning all the time and following your passion for me, I think is is what's most important. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. (laughs) We'll be back again with another episode of Campus Voices next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at wvud.org.